going to begin by asking you uh, a question. Uh, is there any sin that our God will not forgive? Is there any sin that our God will not forgive? And it may seem like a silly uh, thing to ask, because our answer at first is, well, of course, God forgives any sin. And the Bible, in fact, is full of verses that tell us about the extent of God's forgiveness. He is uh, really a very uh, forgiving God. And I could spend the whole of this sermon going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, uh, sharing verse after verse after verse that tells us God is a God who forgives. And so it may be a surprise to some of us that we come tonight in this gospel to a response to Jesus that Jesus says is unforgivable. Tonight we're going to look at what Jesus calls the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin. In this section of Matthew, Jesus is having many confrontations with the Pharisees. Uh, in chapter 12, we see many of them. And these confrontations are heating up. In verse 14, uh, they made pl plans to kill Jesus. And in tonight's passage, we see their response get even worse. It goes downhill for them uh, from there. So let's look at their response to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 22 to 37. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will, be, will give account on the day of judgment 
for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. This is God's word. Well, in in chapters 11 and 12, we've been seeing these various responses to Jesus, and the responses uh, that we see are always in response to something Jesus has said or something Jesus has done. And right here, there is this miracle of healing of a man who is demon-possessed in verse 22. Uh, In that verse, it says, they, which is likely referring to the large crowd of verse 15. And they bring a demon-possessed man who was blind and was mute. And the healing that Jesus gives is such that the man could talk and he could see. And so people begin to wonder, in verse 23, could this be the son of David? They were astonished and they wondered, could this be the son of David? Well, the title Son of David is a biblical title for the Messiah. It is the one who God has promised to deliver his people from sin. Is this the one, they were saying, the one that all the Old Testament prophets were pointing towards? Is this the one that we are waiting for to deliver us from our enemies? That's what they were asking. That's what son of David means. And the reason they are wondering whether Jesus is the son of David is because bringing sight to the blind and speech to the mute is a work that the Messiah was expected to do, a work that wasn't done in the whole of the Old Testament. In fact, Isaiah chapter 35, and we've seen this before in Matthew's Gospel, but I'll show you again, explains what, uh, well, it's one of the places in Isaiah that explains what the Messiah would do. This is what Isaiah says. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So people were waiting for someone who would be able to open the eyes of the blind and loosen the tongue so that the mute tongue would shout for joy. People were not sure who Jesus was because at other times they looked at him and as we looked at last time in Matthew's Gospel, he was quiet He told people not to say anything. He was so unexpected in so many ways. But he did perform miracles that made people wonder, is this the son of David? They just were wondering. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, realising what people were saying, well, they wanted people to know this is not the son of David. Even though... Uh, Jesus is the son of David. The Pharisees wanted to discredit him. They wanted to to calm people down, to, to dispel what they were thinking. And so in verse 24, it says, When the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. This is a repeat of an accusation they had made before in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 24. They would not ascribe what Jesus was doing to God. They couldn't ascribe it to a human. They couldn't ascribe it to another God who doesn't exist. And so the only place that was left was that it was either from God, which they couldn't say, or from the evil one. And so they said, 
that it was by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that Jesus does these things. Uh, Beelzebul was a name for Satan, the prince of demons. And when Jesus was accused of this in chapter 9, we don't read a response. But here, Jesus answers what they were saying. And what Jesus does in the first place is to show this truth. There is only one source for Jesus' power. There is only one source for Jesus' power. It is either from Satan or it is from God. And I, we, we would agree with the Pharisees here, wouldn't we? Just a, a mere human being without God can't do these things. There is no other God, so it can't be from there. And so it is either from the evil one or it is from God. And which is it with Jesus? Well, Jesus uses three arguments in this passage to show that the source of his power is from God. And the first argument in verses 25 to 26 is from logic. The first argument in verses 25 and 26 is from logic. The forces of darkness are opposed to God. But if he was from Satan, casting out demons that are opposed to God would be Satan fighting against himself. Any kingdom, Jesus says, that's divided against itself will be ruined. And we know that to be true, don't we? If there's a, a civil war in a society, it's never going to make for a nation that's stable. It's going to fall apart. Jesus uses the example here of a kingdom, but also of a city and of a household. You can't accomplish your goals if those whom you are accomplishing those goals with are not with you, but fighting against you. It doesn't make sense for Satan to be driving himself out of people because it would be going against what he's trying to do. And so Jesus says in verse 26, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? It is not logical, Jesus says, for my power to come from Satan. It does not make sense for the source of power to drive out Satan to come from Satan. Jesus argues from logic. Your accusation just does not make any sense. Well, the second argument in verses 27 to 28 is from precedent, from precedent. He talks here of the Pharisees' uh, people in verse 27. If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, then who do your people drive them out? By whom do your people drive them out? People there were, were, were their followers, the ones that were following the Pharisees. And it seems that they were performing exorcisms. And the Pharisees would obviously say that their people were performing exorcisms by the power of God. But Jesus' exorcisms were greater in both quantity and quality including the opening of the eyes of the blind and causing the mute to talk. And he's saying here, if a greater exorcism is from Satan, which is what I'm doing, a greater exorcism, then Satan, therefore, has more power than God because your people are driving out demons and those exorcisms are lesser than mine. And so Jesus says, 
they will be your judges. If my power is from Satan and your peoples are from God, then either your God is weaker than Satan, or they must come from the same source. And so they will be your judges. In other words, what they do shows you the evidence that my power is from God, not from Satan. And then Jesus says in verse 28 that if, if, the, if the power is from the Spirit of God, he says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If Jesus' power is not from Satan, which it logically and by precedent can't be, then it must be from God. And if what Jesus is doing is from God, then the kingdom has come, because he is doing those acts which announce that the kingdom is coming, including the defeating of the forces of evil. So he's using logic, and then he uses precedent. But following on from this, Jesus then uses a third argument in verse 29, an argument from illustration. He gives an illustration. He says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Now this little illustration he gives is helpful. If someone is going to rob my house when I am there, unless they tie me up or knock me out, they're going to find it more difficult to rob me because I'm going to fight against them. I'll probably lose the fight, granted, but they probably won't be able to steal as much stuff if I'm there trying to fight against them. But if I was tied up, then they have free reign to plunder my house. That's what Jesus is saying here. In the illustration, then, Satan is the strong man, and Jesus is carrying off his possessions, which are the people under his under the influence of Satan, like the demon-possessed man. He helped people to be rid of Satan, and he restored them to wholeness. He is plundering Satan's kingdom by releasing people from Satan's power. Satan does have power. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, explain a bit about the Satan uh, Satan's power. Listen to what these verses say about Satan. As for you, this is Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and, the, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is Satan. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Apart from God, we are under the influence of the prince of the power of the air whose spirit is at work in us. That's what these verses in Ephesians are saying. Satan has a power. It's in this world, influencing people away from God, and it results in people living for the cravings of their flesh and following their desires and thoughts. But Jesus is more powerful than Satan, and when he comes, he plunders Satan's kingdom. And when he does that, he's releasing people from his influence. And so those of us who are Christians are those that have been released from the influence and power of Satan and into the kingdom of God. And 
up until this very day, and it's continuing now, Jesus is plundering the kingdom of Satan. Every time someone becomes a Christian, Satan's kingdom is being plundered. That's what's going on. Satan is tied up. He can't stop Jesus. Jesus is plundering the kingdom of evil. Well, the big point in verses 22 to 29 is this. Jesus' power can only come from one source, God himself, which is through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus' power can only come from one source, God himself, which is through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus at his baptism, we saw that, and he works through Jesus so that Jesus performs these amazing miracles that show that he is God's Messiah. But the Pharisees could not accept it, and so they ascribed his work as coming from Satan. They said it cannot be from God, it must be from Satan. Think for a moment about the work of God the Holy Spirit. Think about his work through Jesus, the miracles his, of healing, the, the calming of the storm, raising the dead, casting out demons and so on. Ultimately, as we read in just a bit before Ephesians chapter 2, the resurrection from the dead, the mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead that is at work in us is a power that comes from God, the Holy Spirit. He works through Jesus. Think about how the Holy Spirit has worked through the, the church. If you read the, the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit descends on God's people, they perform mighty deeds in Jesus' name. And throughout the history of the church to the present day and until Jesus returns, this will continue to happen, the church transforms the world through people working by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about how the Holy Spirit has worked in our own church. We, look, we can look at the people around us and see that the Holy Spirit has done amazing works in calling people out of darkness into the kingdom of light. We see uh, baptisms and people give their testimony and they explain what God has done in their lives, how God called them. That is a work of the Spirit. We can each talk to one another and we can say, what, how has the Spirit worked in your life? And all we need to do is just tell them how we became Christians and we see a mighty work of the Holy Spirit, don't we? Listen to those testimonies. They're amazing testimonies of the work of God. Think about your own life, how the Holy Spirit called you through his word and how he calls us every day as we open up the Bible to live for Jesus. And then he helps us to do that. Every time we obey the Lord Jesus Christ, it is by the power of the Spirit that enables us to do it. And when you see all of these things, the work through Jesus, through his church, through this church, through your own life, what is your response? What do you say to that work? Well, the Pharisees said, us uh, of Satan. Can you see how foolish and wrong that that response is? Well, having seen that response from the, Pharisee, from the Pharisees, we'll see now what the right response should be. But Jesus actually tells us that there are only two responses to the Holy Spirit's power. There are only two responses to the Holy Spirit's power. Now you may be thinking, well actually, I, th I can think of a number of responses. There's the response of accepting the gospel and believing. 
There's the response of not being really bothered. There's the, the response of kind of half-belief. There's the response of questioning. There's the agnostic. There's the antagonist. But Jesus tells us that in the end, humanity is in either one of two camps. Look at verse 30. Whoever is not with me <clears throat> is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Your response to the work of the Holy Spirit shows that you are either for Jesus or against Jesus. Apathy, agnosticism, antagonism, they are all the same thing as far as Jesus is concerned. You are against him. There is no neutral ground. You can't say, well, I'm kind of in God's kingdom with one foot, but in the other foot I'm in the world. No, that means you're against him. There is no middle ground. That's what Jesus is saying there in verse 30. And those for Jesus gather people into his kingdom, and those who are against him drive people away from his kingdom. And this is true whether you are actively doing this or unknowingly doing this. If you are actively against Jesus, it's obvious that you are driving people away from his kingdom. We see that um, when Alan was talking last week about Samaritan's Purse and the opposition they face. There's all sorts of things on the humanist website that talks about how wrong it is to send shoeboxes with the gospel in it. That's a very active way of being against Jesus. But it is just as much of a scatterer away from God's kingdom when you're just not bothered about Jesus at all. There's no kind of middle ground. It's a bit like a, a, a magnet. You either attract or repel. You can do it to a greater or a lesser extent, but you either draw people away or to Jesus. There's no third option. We are either for him or against him, and we show that by our response to the work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 31, the first two words are, and so which then links it with the verse we've just read. So whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so, as a result of people being either uh, against uh, or for me, based on their response to the Spirit, there is one sin that will not be forgiven. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, in the light of verse 30, it is the one response of the two to the work of the Spirit which is wrong. In short, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the wrong response to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've seen so far. The Pharisees have seen the Spirit working through Jesus by casting out demons, and they said that is a work of Satan. They, wrong response, Pharisees. It's not a work of Satan, it's a work of God, the Holy Spirit. The context is key to understanding what this phrase means because it causes, uh, has caused a lot of confusion amongst Christians who are worried whether they've committed this terrible sin. The context is this. The Pharisees see the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus, a work that cannot have its source from anywhere else but God, and attribute that work to Satan knowing it can't really be from Satan. And so blasphemy against the Spirit is to see the Holy Spirit at work, 
but willfully and deliberately reject it when there is no other explanation. So blasphemy against the Spirit is to see the Holy Spirit at work, but to willfully and deliberately reject it when there is no other explanation. There was no other explanation for this exorcism. Jesus has shown that in his three arguments from logic and precedent and illustration. And to ascribe it to Satan was pure hard-heartedness on the part of the Pharisees. They just hated Jesus so much they couldn't bear to ascribe it to what was obvious, the Holy Spirit. Today this sin is to see the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus and through God's people through the ages and through God's people that you know and through the work of the Holy Spirit perhaps calling you in your own life and to reject that work willfully and deliberately knowing that there is no other explanation for these lives. And you look through the history of the church and you see in, in, in the Acts of the Apostles these unlearned men who were cowering with fear when Jesus was taken away all of a sudden giving their lives because they believed that this saviour is risen from the dead. There is no explanation for these lives, except that the Spirit has done an awesome work in them. Uh, an example from today is that the, the, the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures show us that the tomb that Jesus was buried in is empty. The tomb is empty. There is, there is no one there, and there once was someone there, Jesus. And the, the evidence for that resurrection is so overwhelming. But in the face of all the evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead, people come up with ridiculous other theories, such as, well, he didn't really die, or he just seemed to die, but he wasn't really dead. Uh, they, they stole the body. And then when those theories are shown to be fallacious, they refuse to believe anyway and ignore the impact of what that means, that Jesus is risen from the dead. That's an example of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where they're just saying there's no way that that can possibly be true. And they discount all the other works of the Spirit through the, through the lives of God's people, and they say that cannot possibly be true. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not a one-off sin. Before I became a Christian, I rejected the gospel a number of times. But it's not a one-off sin. It's a state of the heart, a fixed position where someone will not accept the clear work of the Spirit. And it's unforgivable because the person won't accept then the Holy Spirit calling them to repent. And in not accepting the call to repent, they won't ask for forgiveness and not asking forgiveness is really unforgivable. But notice in verse 31 something which I think is so often missed. The amazing grace in this verse. Every kind of sin or slander will be forgiven. Every kind of sin or slander will be forgiven. No matter what sin that you've done, it says here that every kind will be forgiven. Isn't that amazing grace? No sin is beyond the forgiveness of God except to not respond to the call of the Spirit to come to God for forgiveness. You see? And if we don't ask for forgiveness, then we're not going to be forgiven, and so it is unforgivable. 
So Jesus reinforces this point in verse 32. Look at what it says there. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. To blaspheme uh, is to uh, speak against, which is just what the Pharisees did. And if we speak against the Son of Man, Jesus says we are forgiven, but not against the Holy Spirit. Well, what's Jesus meaning here? Because the Son of Man is a, a name for Jesus. Well, this is not Jesus putting himself below the Holy Spirit in authority. Rather, Jesus is saying here that when he was on earth, people were confused about him. People didn't walk across the street and see Jesus and just say, oh, God with us. That's God there. Because Jesus, we read, was a man of no reputation, of no appearance that would make us look at him and think, ah, that one's God. Jesus often told people not to say anything about him. His disciples were confused about who he was. But the Holy Spirit, at this point, his work was very different. It was clearly a work of God. And to speak against that, Jesus says, is unforgivable. And things changed as well after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit made the work of Jesus while he was on earth clear to people. And the apostles wrote this down in the scriptures which the Spirit inspired. And so now there is no excuse for looking at Jesus in the Spirit-inspired scriptures and not recognising who he is. This was, if you like, a, a unique time when Jesus was on earth, before his resurrection. At this point, people were wondering, is this the son of David? But once he's risen from the dead and the Spirit comes, we know this is the son of David, no question. Again, this sin is not a one-off expression of unbelief. It is a set position of the heart that is never repented of. When we consider the unforgivable sin, you don't have to worry if you've committed this sin. If you seek forgiveness, in short, you haven't. In seeking forgiveness of sin based on the work of Jesus on the cross, you are responding to the call of the Holy Spirit. And so by definition, you are not blaspheming against him. You are responding to his call, the work that he's doing in your life. And so the big application from the, these verses so far is this. Which camp are you in? Are you in the camp that is the blasphemers of the Holy Spirit who are denying God's work, the work of God which is clear for us to see or are you in the camp of those who see God at work through Jesus and respond to him in faith knowing him as God's Messiah if you persist in unbelief it is simply unforgivable and God may not call you again notice how Jesus says in this age or in the age to come. That means that you may not even be forgiven in this age because that would mean that the Holy Spirit will stop calling you to be forgiven. 
It would be the Holy Spirit withdrawing so that you no longer even feel the call and so you will never be forgiven in this age either. Now, if that's bothering you as an unbeliever, the answer is simply this. Seek him while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Don't go away from here today and walk outside and go home and forget about what has been said. Rather, look again at what the Spirit is doing through Jesus. Look at what the Spirit is doing through the church. Talk to somebody you're sitting with and ask them, what's God done in your life? Listen to those stories. And listen to the call from God that you too need to be forgiven of your sins. And if you come to him for forgiveness, he will forgive you of every kind of sin and slander. We need to repent today because you may not be able to tomorrow. That's the big point so far. Well, blasphemy is described, or defined rather, as speaking against God. And the reason why speaking against God is treated so seriously is because of what Jesus goes on to say in verses 33 to 37. It's so serious because the words from our mouth reveal the response from our hearts. When someone speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shows that their heart is far from God. And Jesus gives uh, an illustration in verse 33. He says, make a a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Now I know, and Jesus knows, that you can't make a tree. But he's giving an illustration, not a horticultural lesson here. The point is that the quality of the fruit depends on the quality of the tree. Our heart is the tree and our words are the fruit. The Pharisees' words against the Holy Spirit showed the evil in their hearts. And in verse 34, Jesus calls them a brood of vipers, using the same language as John the Baptist did about them. And it's interesting to note how vipers are snakes, an animal that's linked to who? Satan. They are accusing Jesus of being evil, but Jesus is saying that their words show who the real evil is. And Jesus says, how can you who are evil say anything good? The Pharisees cannot produce good words because their hearts are evil. All their words, even the words which are meant for good, are tainted with evil. And Jesus explains why. For the mouth speaks, he says, what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And Jesus reinforces this in verse 35. Good comes from good stored up, evil brings evil that's stored up. What we're putting into our hearts and storing up comes out of our mouths in how we speak, which is perhaps a very frightening thought, isn't it? When we consider perhaps what we're listening to or what we're watching, what we're taking in, those are the things that are going to come out of our mouths. So we need to be very careful, don't we, what we are putting into our hearts because those things are going to actually come out of our mouths. 
Now, how many of us have ever, uh, and when I say us, I'm, I've definitely done this, how, how many of us have ever said something that is offensive or isn't right and then say these words, I didn't, really, I didn't mean to say that. We've all done it, haven't we? Now, sometimes we may get a word muddled up, but the cutting word or the offensive comment was actually exactly what you meant to say because it comes from the heart. That's what Jesus is saying. The cutting word or the offensive phrase is exactly what you meant to say. That's a challenge, isn't it? The words of the Pharisees in assigning the work of the Spirit to Satan showed the state of their hearts. But our words do as well. Now, before we are all totally crushed by this, let's take solace in the fact that we are all a work in progress. But at the same time, although we are a work in progress, our words show that progress. Although we are a work in progress, our words show the progress. Gossip. Anger. Judgmentalism. Crudeness. Rude jokes. The topics that we talk about. How we talk about Jesus, or even if we talk about him at all, all show what is really in our hearts. And because our words reveal the state of our hearts, Jesus says that we'll be judged by our words. Look at verses 36 and 37. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Empty words are words that are careless or useless, Words that are of no value. Words that tear down rather than build up. They show the state of our hearts. And we'll be judged by them. Our words either acquit us or they condemn us. Now this doesn't mean that we are right with God by our words being right. But rather a Christian being one whose heart has been transformed by the Holy Spirit is going to bear the spiritual fruit of words that are godly. Do you see? We're not saved by speaking good words, but rather because we are saved, our words will reflect the fact that we have new hearts. So let's be careful how we talk. Or rather, let's even go back a stage further and let's be careful what we are allowing into our hearts, what we are taking in. Let us take in the word of God so that we can be as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You can tell a Christian who has been with Jesus a long time just by speaking to them. Do you not find that to be true? Christians who have been following Jesus for, for decades, you can often just tell they've been following Jesus by having a conversation with them. Because the words reveal the work that the Spirit has been doing in their hearts. May we all progress by God's Spirit's power to have words that are 
full of grace and seasoned with salt. Well, tonight,